0: Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we get to talk to Morgan Housel. And Morgan is a partner at the Collaborative Fund, and he's also a former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. And so, as a writer, he's uh, won a, or been nominated for a number of awards, uh, including he's a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. I wanted to say all that because I thought that was a nice mouthful. Um, but the, so, and the Collaborative Fund is a venture capital firm that in, uh, has invested in, in companies like Kickstarter, Lyft, Reddit, Code, Code Academy, and Impossible Foods. So I'm excited to hear more about uh what Morgan has learned over the over the years and what he's doing now and what he's excited about now. So Morgan, thanks for uh coming on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Definitely. And so can you uh before you, you came to the collaborative fund, can you uh tell us a little bit about what you were doing before?
1: Yeah, so my my background is really in uh financial writing, financial journalism. And kind of the, the backstory on that, it was, it was never a plan that I was going to get into. I never had a plan to become a writer. It just kind of happened accidentally over time. And it, it kind of starts back in, uh, in 2007. I was a, a senior in college at the time. Uh, like, like a lot of finance, economics students at the time, my plan after school was investment banking. It was a really attractive industry, had a lot of things going for particularly in that era, kind of a 2006, 2000 era. Uh, era when, when investment banking and finance in Wall Street were really kind of at their high in terms of prestige and power and pay. Uh, so really wanted to get into investment banking. Got an investment banking internship in uh, the summer of my senior year and quickly just realized that the culture didn't fit with how I, I like to work. It's a really uh, intense, in-the-moment Of macho culture, especially back then. It's changed a little bit now, but especially back then, it was a pretty intense culture. Uh, So, I did that for about six months before I left, and then I got a job in private equity, which I really liked, really enjoyed private equity. It was really getting your hands dirty in businesses, uh, both the business side and the finance investing side, really had both elements. Uh, really enjoyed it, but this was summer of 2007, which is when credit markets kind of seized and blew up. Which, if you're a private equity fund where you're you need to borrow lots of money to keep these businesses going, it's a pretty precarious place to be in. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall where that was going when things got started getting really hairy. Uh, so I started looking for something else to do in finance, and then this again is so I'm moving into uh, 2008 and things started getting really hairy in finance. And I, I, at the time, I had a friend who was uh, a writer for The Molly Fool, and he said, "Hey, you should, you should, you should see if, if, if they'll take you in. You can just write about investments. I've been really interested and active in personal investing, personal finance for a long time. And so, I, again, I had never, I had no interest or background in writing, but I thought, hey, maybe I could write some articles for a couple months before I find a new private equity job." Uh, and then so I, I joined, started doing it and really just fell in love with the process of writing, kind of the the, the thought process and just being able to lay your, lay your ideas out on paper is a really good way to clarify how you think about a topic. So I planned on doing it for a couple of months before I found another job and ended up staying at the Molly School for almost, for almost 10 years. Um, wow. so, and so that was, just, so that, yeah. and then in the middle there, I was a, I was a columnist for the wall street journal for several years, wrote the Saturday investing column. Um, so, so my background is really in, in financial writing and journalism and kind of what I always tried to do was take complicated financial topics and distill them down into something that was easy to understand without losing any of the meaning. And I feel like a, a lot of forms in, of writing but particularly I think finance goes out of the way to, to complicate a topic. And if it's not even known that it, it, it's not even that, that the writer is doing that on purpose. I think there's this, this innate idea that when you make something sound complicated, uh, you're adding more value to the writing. And I think from the perspective of the reader, it's never the case. And that, From the perspective of a reader, the best writing that you just love and cling to and want to keep reading and just pass on to your friends are the things that can explain something complicated in as few words as possible, as few paragraphs as possible, just really clean, simple to the point. So that's always what I tried to do with writing and taking something that was like finance investing that was uh, intimidating for a lot of people. Uh, and that Not just individual investors, but professional investors that you know, kind of, they've had a hard time wrapping their heads around some of the bigger topics, or they had these ideas that were on the tip of their tongue, but they had never really articulated it. So I, I just tried to take those points and distill them down to something that was a little more digestible for readers.
0: And and how do you kind of learn to do that? Like how how good were you at that when you first started at the Molly Fool? Terrible.
1: Terrible. <laughs> so I, I, so I why they the, work? The, so how, the process
0: of it. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: You know, I, I would say the, the the process of it is, A, my, myself, I'm, I'm a, a pretty active and voracious reader. And when you are a reader, you're basically a customer of the writing product. And through that process, you, I, you see what kind of writing you like and what kind you don't like. So all day when I'm reading books or articles or magazine articles or whatnot, I come across stuff where I just say, gosh, that paragraph was insufferable like I can't I didn't understand a single word of that <laughs> or you read an article and you say wow that was so powerful this is like one of the best articles I've read in a while and then I think as a writer I, it just became incumbent to start analyzing and saying what was it about that article that uh, made it so easy to understand what was it about that article that I just didn't get this just turned me off and Time and time again, I think I, I just kept coming down on this point, but the articles that I loved were the ones that just had, had a simple point, made a point quickly and clearly, and then got out of the reader's way without adding any more fluff to the sides. Just what's your point? Tell me that point, And then get out, of my, get out of my way. So that's, that's always what I, what I tried to do with writing. And it's different than, than just writing short articles. I think that's oftentimes how it's interpreted. It's just like, Okay, if, you, if you're trying to write something cleanly and simply, test and short, it doesn't necessarily have to be short. It just it's just using as few words as possible as you need to make your point. So that's always been something that I uh, I I try to remember when I'm when I'm writing. It's it's not it's not easy even after 10 years and 3,500 articles. It's not easy at all uh, to do that. Um, um so it's, it's something that you know i i really don't think it's possible to to master writing or even come close mm-hmm. to it it's an it's an art that i think to the day you die even if you do it every day you'll still be learning new things and still be trying to get better and better as you go um so that's that, that's kind of the, the process of how i like to think about writing and, and how i've kind of how i've viewed it along the way and
0: and i'm curious because you know, to distill something simply, often you have to have a, a pretty good grasp of what's going on. I mean, do you find that articles that you read where that where it's uh, kind of confusing or not very inspiring? Do you think sometimes the 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 writer just doesn't have a very good grasp of what of what's going on, or is it more just their writing's terrible?
1: No, I I would actually say most of the time it's neither of those. Okay. I would say it's not that the writer doesn't have a grasp. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that they don't know what's going on. I think most of the time it's that, uh, they, the writer doesn't really have anything notable to say. And, and, and then, and they take a point that is not that interesting and, it's, and then to try to make it interesting, they add on a lot of fluff on top of it. You see this a lot, particularly with daily stock market news. What did the Dow do today? What did the NASDAQ do this morning? That, that is not, the information that's in there doesn't really have any, any real meaning or insight or takeaway that you as a reader are going to say, wow, that's really important. I should do something with this that changes how I view the world. There's just nothing in those daily market updates that's really going to uh, change how you think about the topic of investing. And then, uh, but of course, as a writer you or as a journalist writing these updates, you can't say that. So what happens is they end up, these articles just add on a bunch of fluff where they interview, uh, you know, mutual fund managers who add adds his or her take to it, and they add on, you know, what the Dow did last week and, you know, some historic milestone. So it's just like adding in a bunch of words to try to make it sound coherent so that the article tries to make a point. But there's really there's really not much point there. And, and, and I guess the, the bigger point I'm trying to make is that, you know, the... Uh, the number of things that need to be written is, is a tiny infinitesimal fraction of the number of things that are written online. And that's, and that's, of course, grown by orders of magnitude over the last 10 or 20 years with blogs and Twitter and, and digital publishing, where the, the, uh, the cost of admission is now uh, so low, it's basically zero, where anyone can really go on and start writing. And in many ways, I want to make clear, that is a great thing because it's, it's bringing in voices that we never had. Uh, but the, the, the downside of it is that it has increased the amount of noise and the amount of fluff by many orders of magnitude c- compared to what financial media was 20 years ago when the uh, the cost of admission, so to speak, was much higher. and that if you wanted to get published in a magazine in order to get people's attention, you really had to put out something that was more thoughtful and had a more direct point and was more uh, was fully fleshed out versus a lot of stuff that's out there today.
0: Yeah and you, you come across a lot of it seems like they're almost copycat articles too. like you see you see one topic and then you see like a bunch of like kind of like a little different twist on it. And uh, yeah, yeah uh,
1: no, I, and, and and you know I, I I sympathize with writers who have a quote where they have to put out one or two articles per day, um, when even you know if you are the most uh astute, voracious thinker. And you are an expert in your topic. The odds that you're going to have a good insight yeah. once or twice a day, I mean, no one has that. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody can do. That. <laughs> right. But if you are, but if if you are a writer and your editor says, "I need you to publish an article every day at 2 p.m.", you just then most of the time you're going to be really uh, stretching for ideas and 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 filling in kind of mediocre ideas with a lot of fluff. And once in a while, you'll get an idea that's great. But a lot of, most of the kind of the stepping stones to that great piece are going to be a lot of lower quality pieces out there. And that, to a really important point, those lower quality pieces do not reflect uh, a lack of intelligence or a lack of skill from the authors, by and large. A lot of it is the incentives of the industry, especially if you're a Mm. professional writer. Like I said, if if you're forced to write every day, that's what you're forced to do to earn your paycheck. Versus a a lot of these people, if they didn't have that incentive and you just said, hey, whenever you have a great idea, post it to your blog. And it doesn't, whether that's once a month or twice a year, just whenever it's good, post it. Then I think, uh, the quality of the output of a lot of those writers would go through the roof. And really interesting, I think a, a fascinating part of this is, uh, a lot of the best content and the most thought provoking, the most meaningful, uh, content out there today. It, it's not from the media outlets that have deep pockets, Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or Reuters or whatnot, that have tons of resources that can pay the best people and invest in the best graphic design. It's not necessarily those outlets. A lot of the most meaningful, thought-provoking content comes from uh, nonprofit blogs. Just just someone out there who has a blog. Maybe they're a portfolio manager or an economist, or just a, a you know, maybe they're a, a product engineer, and they have a blog. And a couple times a year, they get a great idea and they put it on paper and they publish it. That that I think overwhelmingly is where some of the most thoughtful content comes from. So it's kind of flipped up this idea that if you know in media if you have the most resources the most money you're going to put out the best content. I think it's just really not the case uh, in content. And specifically, the reason is just going back to where we started this conversation: the 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 number of great ideas out there is uh, are, are few and far between. Hmm. Um, but the in order to make a media company run these days, you need to kind of play the volume game and be publishing, publishing, publishing all day long.
0: And a couple more questions on writing, then we can get into uh, your VC world. But uh, so, how many articles did you have to write a week, or we were responsible for? Us?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, there was a period where I was I was that person who was writing one or two articles per day. Wow. Um, and and it's tough. And certainly when I go back to it. In the story that I just told you, I was basically describing my life, say, <laughs> five or six years ago. And, you know, if I published, you know, 40 or 50 articles per month, I might be, I might be proud of one or two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's true for, I, for I, I think, a lot of the writers that I, that I speak with now, even if they're writing one or two articles per month, uh, so let's say 20 or 30 per year, uh, they still might be only really proud of one or two of them per year.
0: Hmm.
1: So the, 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 the number of articles in any given year that you are really proud of is always, it's just, is usually going to be a, a small fraction of what you, of what you published. Hmm. So that was, that was my experience back then. And then it tapered off. And now I write about once a week, sometimes less than okay. that. Okay. So it's, it's tapered off considerably. So now I feel like I do have a little more, more leeway to, Really think a topic through and only publish it once I have kind of uh, checked all the boxes and thought things through and slept on it for a night and talked to other people and whatnot. So I've i more flexibility now than I have in years past.
0: Okay, and and how did you find ideas for articles? And uh, you know, I'm especially interested in kind of your process. I, I I'm guessing you got a lot better at the research process or like taking information in and then um, paraphr- paraphrasing it or putting your own words, you know, quickly, right? You had to when you're writing that much, Um, which is kind of a skill that we all all want. (laughs) Yeah. I I would say, I
1: would say there's two, there's two sides to this. One is that I'll I'll, I'll start with the downside. It has actually become substantially harder to come up with topics than it was for me five or six years ago. Hmm. And it's one of the few things where I think the more experience you have the harder the job becomes. And the reason why I'll tell you is because so much of the low-hanging fruit uh, for articles uh, I picked 5 or 10 years ago. And now for me to come up with something new to say that I haven't said before, using an example that I haven't used before, using a storyline that I haven't used before, gets harder and harder as the years go by. Whereas I feel like 5 or 7 years ago, there was there were all these ideas that I just hadn't thought about, and they were obvious to other people, but I hadn't written about them yet. So for me, it was all new, and I could come up with new ideas. Where now it's like I feel like I've it's it's a struggle for me to keep coming up with new new ideas, and kind of how I've gotten around that. And this is something that I've learned from from other writers: is you don't keep coming up with new ideas. Nobody can do that in perpetuity. There just aren't enough good ideas. What you need are maybe five or ten big, like grand points, like big master ideas that you believe in, and then for your articles, you just keep coming up with new examples and new ways to kind of reinforce those points. And Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal, famous investing writer, he said his job as an investing writer is to write the same thing 50 times per year without his readers realizing that
0: he's repeating himself. (laughs) Good. That's interesting. Wow. So that's
1: yeah. so you know that that really becomes the skill of a writer huh. is learning how to say the same thing or or roughly the same ideas in ways that are so new and with new examples that your readers don't realize that you're repeating yourself. That becomes the challenge. But In terms of like where those ideas come from, and whatnot. That I would say in terms of like examples and storylines, that is something that probably does get easier over time. And I think you just start training yourself to, in the process of your reading, when you're reading, you're reading books or reading newspapers or magazines, just always looking for ideas where you read an example in a book. And it usually doesn't have anything to do with investing or business. You might be reading a book. I I like World War II history. You might just you reading something and you come across a line or a story or an example, and you just have to say, like how could this tie into a business or investing story? And I think... the the more you're just always looking for those examples, the more you start seeing them in non-investing industries. You see them in politics and biology and math and physics. So I think the more you just expose yourself to as many different topics, you start seeing uh, certain behavioral flaws and biases and stories around incentives uh, and long term thinking in other industries that you can use as an example to tie it back into investing. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, so, especially just a long way of saying like where do these ideas come from? It's mainly just, I think, immersing yourself in reading, uh, not just reading, but reading a variety of different topics to try to just pick out certain examples and themes and stories and then try to tie it back into, uh, your writing as for, for business investing.
0: Okay. That's good advice, and and you mentioned something in there about uh, you, know, you you might write about five big ideas over and over again. Do you have, uh, and then we'll talk about the collaborative fund, but and this might be part of it actually is. Uh, do you have any themes like that right now? You're writing about like one or two big ideas that you kind of, kind of go back to over and over again.
1: Yeah, I I I don't know. So what I, 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 I the one one thing I would say is that they haven't. There's there's not a list of them, so to speak. Okay. it's not that I have you know a list of five ideas. I, I, for, for me, it's just kind of like informal things, themes about how I think about investing, whether that is long-term thinking or in the branding of a company or uh, trends around information dissemination. Uh, so I, I I guess some themes that I've been writing about lately. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, one is is this idea that access to information is is proliferating quickly in a way that has made it harder and harder for companies to hide behind bad business practices. And I think there's there's two parts of this. One is, you know, certainly the internet has has opened doors and brought forth access to information in ways that has never existed before. But that's obvious, and that's been ongoing for 20 years. I think the, the bigger point is that millennials who are now up and coming into the upper ranks of business management uh, and starting to work their way into politics and coming into to money, to where they're starting to be the allocators of capital, have a, because they grew up with the internet and open access to information and the expectation that pertinent information would be disclosed in front of them, uh, since that. Generation is now moving into positions of power. The expectation that all information needs to be out in front of you is much greater today than it was even five or ten years ago. Uh, so it, it it just makes it it just makes it harder for businesses to hide behind uh, you know where their product was manufactured or what ingredients their product is is used by how they treat their employees how they treat their community how they pay their CEO. Things that 10 or 20 years ago they could get away with because people, you know, even it, the information either wasn't out there or if it was, it just wasn't easily accessible. And the generation of managers and investors just didn't put access to that information as one of their priorities. So that's a big shift that's that's changing a lot of uh, how I think companies and brands think about their branding and their marketing and their customer acquisition. And kind of using their values and their openness and their trustworthiness as a competitive advantage. Um, so that's that, that's this one theme that I've I've, I've like been that. touching on quite a bit lately.
0: Yeah, that's a whole podcast right there. Um, <laughs> we, yeah. that's a, that, that's a great theme. And uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Lot, lot of layers to that. That's interesting. Um, cool.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's, I mean, it's a really complicated topic. Actually, that was a, that was that was a two minute summary. But it's uh, not, I, I think it's a topic that has its roots, you know, generations ago, just in terms of how people think about um, access to information. And I, I think kind of the root of it is how generations uh, acquire trust in other people and other organizations. And one way to put this, and then later we can move on to another topic. But baby boomers I think have by and large acquired trust through, the handshake look someone in the eye shake their hands you know you have a financial advisor you go into their office you shake their hand it was a face-to-face interaction and that's how trust was acquired millennials i think were the first generation to acquire trust digitally uh, so so it, it's not that millennials had more information online than they did but millennials were much more likely to use the information that they had online to build a sense of trust so no problem whatsoever putting their personal life on Facebook or managing their investments for betterment. Just acquiring trust digitally was was a theme of millennials. Gen Z, kind of the the really up-and-coming generation who are in their late teens right now, I think are the first generation that acquired trust, not only digitally, but specifically through social engagement. So it's 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 by and large based off of what your, what your peers are doing on Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook. So it's, it's a whole new kind of system of how trust is acquired. And there are a few companies, not many that have caught on to that, uh, and are basing a lot of their, their branding and customer acquisition. If they're going after Gen Z, certainly not through face to face interactions and not even digitally, but specifically through, uh, peer social networks. So that's, that, that's just another way to kind of uh, sum up that broad topic of where we think kind of information and the acquisition of trust is going in the future.
0: And I'd like to, I, I'm curious if that uh, helps drive your investment kind of thesis or focus. But before we do, maybe we should tell people about the collaborative fund. <laughs> um, if it, if you could just give like a brief overview on you know it, the size of it. And uh, I guess I mentioned some of the, Investments uh, Collaborative Fund has made. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So we're, we're, yes, we're an early stage uh, venture capital company started in 2010, currently on our third fund. Uh, and kind of, uh, and then within those three funds, uh, about $125 million under management. we made more than 100 investments in early stage companies. And kind of the broad theme of how we invest is investing at the intersection of for profit and for good. So companies that are moving the world forward as opposed to exploiting a a, a hole that they found in the economy. And uh, kind of the big idea is that companies that do the best social good over the next generation are going to be the companies that attract the most attention, the best employees. They will attract uh, the best operating partners, attract the right customers, attract the right long-term thinking customers, and using those values as a competitive edge. And that, I think, ties back to what we were just talking yeah. to in terms of uh, access to information and how trust is acquired, that it used to be, uh, for, for many generations, that companies could kind of hide behind how they treated their employees, how they treated their customers, where their products came from, how they were made. And since you can't do that anymore, the companies that will have a competitive advantage over the next generation are going to be companies that use their values uh, as a weapon. Uh, to kind of compete against the companies that aren't doing that, so we're really interested in companies that have uh, a social mission to move the world forward. Uh, that's not that's that's not even in addition to their their profit motive, but is a, a functioning part of their business model. So it's it's not even that it, by investing in companies that are doing good for the world, you are taking a ding on returns. We we view it as these companies are are likely going to be the companies. That, that create the most value for their investors over the next generation. Because, because specifically because they are the most sustainable in terms of kind of not getting called out by, by people for, for bad business practices and because they will attract the most talent and the best uh, and most loyal and committed customers mm. during the next generation.
0: And was that the inf- investment uh, thesis right from the beginning, 2010, or is that kind of transformed over the years?
1: No, that's, that's always been, that's the, always been okay. the thesis from, okay. uh, from, from day one. Yeah, 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 that's always been the, the core. And I think, I think that will always be our core. Yeah. It's not to say that we won't adapt and adjust to new industries, new trends, where, you know, where things are going, but I think that will always be the, the base of the pyramid of, of how we think about uh, growth in the economy over the next, not quarter or year, but, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years over the next generation or two.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And, and where are you guys located for the audience?
1: Uh, so our, yeah. So our, our main office is in New York. We also have a partner in San Francisco.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And, and so for you personally, you know, why the VC world? Now there have been some pretty well-known fans, VCs that were, journalist before <laughs> becoming VCS um, but yeah. uh, what made you take the plunge and how did that all happen?
1: Yeah so I'll, I'll give you two answers. One is a, a, a firm belief so my, my personal answer is, is, is a firm belief that you know if, uh, 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 if, if you can align <laughs> excuse me, if you can align your personal values with the values of your employer, and the odds that you will do your best work, your most meaningful work that you are truly passionate about, go through the roof. So when I met uh, Fred Shapiro, who's the managing director of the Climate Fund, actually years before I joined, it was it was apparent it was one of those meetings where right from the start, it's you you, can, you start saying to yourself in your head like, yeah, this is the company that I want to work for huh. because it's I mean it might sound cheesy, but like it doesn't. Feel like work when you're really chasing something that you truly believe in. So that's that's my that's one personal reason uh, for joining. The Second personal reason was kind of you know I, I I always have and still do and always will enjoy the process of writing about investing. But there's something about being an outsider that you know, there, there's a view that you don't see, and I, I think there, there's there's a unique view that you can see as an outsider as look again as a writer. Kind of writing about things from the side. I think there's a lot of benefit to that because you're not kind of swayed by some of the biases of being an insider investor or company operator. Uh, uh, see, but there's. I it got to a point in my career where writing about it from the outside was not going to be as meaningful, or I, I was missing a lot that being on the inside, kind of getting your hands dirty, so to speak, was going to show me. Um, and you know, to take it back with where we started. My uh, my background and kind of my early career was investment banking, private equity, and it's always something that I wanted to get back into. The writing portion was never part of the strategy; it's just something that that happened. So I, I always kind of uh, uh, longed to get back into it. And then when I found the right company, the right the right team, the right opportunity, uh, it was it was it was kind of a joy. The other Reason I would say, from a, from the collaborative funds perspective, why right? I spent quite a bit of my time doing content, I would say th- there's this there's this unique irony that if you speak to a lot of investors, they can talk at length about the value and importance of branding for the companies that they invest in. They can say, "Oh, you know, you know, look at Coca Cola. They built such a great brand. Their marketing is so spot on." Brand is so important. It's so important to set yourself apart from your competitors' brand. You know, they can go on and on. And then for their own company, their own investing firm, they put no thought into it whatsoever. They name <laughs> right. the firm after themselves. You know, it's called Jones Capital Management. And they have a website that was built in 1994, but they don't even think about it anymore. There's no thought whatsoever into their own brand. And I think that irony is always been interesting. And it's getting more interesting over the last 15 or 20 years after there's been a proliferation in investing companies. And now it gets harder and harder to set yourself apart. And in a world where money is fungible, how do you set yourself apart from the other literally thousands of hedge funds and private equity funds and venture funds out there when you know there are so many funds out there, a lot of which have really deep pockets and write big checks. But if you are... Uh, a, a world-class entrepreneur who has your pick of, of different funds? How do you set yourself apart? And I think branding uh, a, a venture fund, as we've tried to do with collaborative Fund, is, is how we, you know, to, to go back to the, the, the values and kind of the investing philosophy that we have of how we invest, those values and that philosophy don't matter unless the world knows about them, unless we are actively going out to tell people uh, this is how we view the world and this is, how, this is where we see the biggest opportunities and this is how we're going to try to exploit them. So by by using content, whether it is articles or research reports or speaking at conferences, that is our way of just going out and telling people what we're doing and trying to build our brand to set ourselves apart from the literally thousands of other private investment funds that are out there. And our, our goal with that is that that brand over time will itself kind of become a beacon for people, for entrepreneurs and other investors who align with that philosophy. So that we start attracting uh, you know, the, the right entrepreneurs, the right investors, mm-hmm. the right operating partners, uh, and the brand itself kind of becomes a symbol for uh, how we invest. So that's, 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 that's the broader reason of why we institute uh, and, and, are, and are putting a lot of effort into uh, content as a venture capital firm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting, the branding perspective. I mean, there's a lot of there's you know now there's quite a few VCs that blog, but if you think about it, if I think about it, most a lot of the VC firms are not really branded. You know, you got Union Square Ventures kind of known for their networks, but a lot of the other VC firms yeah. they're just no they're not really known for anything besides Miami deep pockets or uh, maybe right. early right. on. And and you and and, and, um, and
1: yeah. you know there are some firms that can certainly get away with that because their long term track yeah, record yeah. is such the brand speaks for itself sequoia whatnot you know they've they, you know they built a long-term brand based purely off of results but if you're not a 40 year old fund that has a 40 year you know a 40 year track record uh then it's it's incumbent to kind of build that brand in a different way
0: and and so what's your role at collaborative fund i mean obviously you're probably you do a lot of content but what else do you do kind of on a day-to-day or what are your priorities?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 probably about half the time content and then half the time other stuff. Okay. And the other stuff is a combination of of working on VC deals that, that we're working on. You know, we're a pretty small group. There's only seven of us, and we're at small group, kind of everyone needs to help out with, with everything. So it's a combination of doing diligence and checking in with entrepreneurs or our existing portfolio companies or speaking to RLPs. And then also something that we're kind of in the early stages of thinking about is whether uh, our vision and our values and investing kind of thesis that we talked about earlier can extend into other asset classes, whether that's growth equity or private equity. That's something that we are in the the early stages of looking at uh, kind of the future and the collaborative fund as we look out five or ten years. That's something I spend quite a bit of my time on these days as well.
0: Interesting. So taking kind of the... The social good aspect and move it into other verticals and investment. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. Yep. I don't know. That. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I can see where that could uh, have a big impact in the, a lot of industries. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, and and you know, back to back to like branding and blogging. That that is something that a lot of venture capital funds have figured out. There are quite a few venture funds, yeah. like you said, that blog and do podcasts, and whatnot. We have not, I think, seen that bleed into private equity or growth equity or public markets. So that's, I think, uh, where we, uh, you know, that's part of this equation that we see as well, is that we've seen the success of venture funds that have used uh, branding and values as a competitive advantage within the investment marketplace, but uh, not so much further down the capital stack. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah, you're right. I can't think of any private equity firm that's really, right. yeah, it might, yeah. might be one, yeah, but not, yeah, many. not many if they're out there. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, what, uh, how, so how long have you been a VC for now working with the collaborative fund?
1: Uh, about a year.
0: About a year, okay. And, you know, during that time, is there anything that's surprised you? Now, you've written a ton about investments. You you know, you were to work at private equity. Um, is there anything in the past year that kind of surprised you or that you learned that you that surprised you or anything like that yeah you
1: know i i would say this is not necessarily a surprise but something that has been interesting to see and uh and, and really cool to see it's kind of in in my own world which was kind of which is public investing and asset allocations and etfs or not there was and there is a big attempt among practitioners to try to reduce risk. And as the whole industry more or less is, here's the market risk. How can we reduce it? What are certain portfolio allocations? How can we hedge, how can we reduce risk? One thing that is uh, refreshing in venture, I think, is the two handed embrace of risk. And and rather than saying what can we do to reduce it? What are some ways that we can dampen volatility in the portfolio? It's just an embrace of risk. And look, what we are doing is is by its very nature and well-known a risky endeavor and i think there is uh, it's much more eyes wide open i would say to the concept of risk than um, most public investors are and uh, not in a not in a reckless way but in a realistic way that i think a lot of public investors uh, fool themselves into thinking that they have reduced risk when they have not Whereas I think most venture funds are extremely aware of the amount of risk they've taken. So I think just the, the cognizance of the amount of risk that investors are taking is much more realistic in venture than it is in other parts of the investing world that I've seen.
0: Interesting. And, and what's one, uh, what's one company you're working with that you, you think is, uh, you're really excited about has nailed it. And, uh, you probably don't like to pick favorites and, uh, you don't have to if you don't want to, but just curious since you know you're talking a lot about the social good, and just curious if there's one uh, company out there that's a, a shining example.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, probably the, the 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 most widely known from our portfolio is Lyft. Yeah, yeah, um, well, and, well, and I think what's interesting, what's interesting about about Lyft, you know, a year ago, even six months ago, I think people would say and rightly say. Lyft just copied Uber. <laughs> right. they, they took, they took the, they took the idea, even down to their app. And they copied. I think that's what really people said. I think there is a growing recognition in the past couple of months, let's say in the last couple of weeks, that the one thing that Lyft did distinctly different from Uber was its brand and its corporate philosophy and kind of its treatment of drivers. Just its corporate ethos was a little bit softer and nicer than Uber. And we're seeing, and granted, this, you know, this might be a temporary trend. I'm not, I'm not bearish on Uber in any sense, but we're, we're definitely seeing some Uber bash, backlash based around its culture, uh, and, and more of a migration to Lyft, which is effectively an identical product, but has a more friendly and I think trustworthy brand than people are realizing Uber has. So that is is an example of, I think, what we're trying to go after are companies that are on kind of the cutting edge of technology and where the world is going, but as their competitive edge, rather than better technology or, you know, faster engineers, their competitive edge is the trustworthiness and friendliness and accessibility of the brand. Hmm. That would would be be one example. That's
0: a good one, I think. I think in the last three months, I've probably multiple times, I've said to myself, Lyft is really like, you know, very socially conscious, <laughs> or like they really, like they, put right. Up, right. they press some media statement or they they do something. I'm like, oh man, I know they're doing it partially just because Uber's exact seems like the exact opposite, but same time, it you mm-hmm. know, it it makes you feel differently about Lyft versus Uber when you're like, who, what, what button should I press? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's and different.
1: you know, I think there, there's certainly been times both in the past and probably likely going forward that Uber will be maybe more forward thinking or faster and more aggressive in its growth. But I think if you think really long term, not about the next quarter or the next year, but about the next 10 years, what is going to drive the most consumer value? Is it, is it, is it getting some new function out next month or is it building consumer trust? Uh, and, and a brand that, that, that consumers embrace uh, you know I, I, as something that, that they can that they empathize with and they really see eye to eye with there's you know if we if, if, if think about the long term in the next 10 years we would put more cards in the latter than the former more cards in kind of the, the brand and the social mission than the engineering move fast and break stuff idea
0: makes sense all right so, we're pretty much out of time, but I got a couple more questions. One is, I, I was curious, uh, you know, what, what's your personal process to make to see if a uh, team and a company has what it takes, you know, f- to invest in and that they're gonna they're gonna make something happen. Like, how do you personally kind of go through that process? Yeah, i will say it, it,
1: it's it's two things. One is one is is, is it's a little is. Objective and one is, is a little softer. Uh, the, the first is 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 a founder's background. What have they done in the past? How much commitment and dedication did they put in the past? Really important. How did they deal with challenges and hiccups and roadblocks in the past? That's really important. So not just how successful have they been in the past, but what did they do when they came across uh, failure in the past? How did they deal with that? I think that's going to be pretty indicative. Of their ability to handle misfortune in the future. So, so just, just track record resume, so yeah. to speak, is a big one. And the other that is much softer and more subjective and harder to quantify is just kind of the feeling that you get when you meet a founder. And it's, it's hard to describe or put into words, but I, I think most people can understand this, even if you're, you're never in DC. There, there's a feeling that you get when you meet someone uh special in, in, in terms of their trustworthiness, their dedication, whether they are, are faking their dedication to this or whether they have truly poured their life into it. You can tell pretty quick whether someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes versus if someone is generally just thrilled and excited and devoted to, to what they're doing. So, so those are those are the two things. And, and then, you know, that's the in the beginning. And then after that, once the investment is made and you're working with the company, it's it, it's figuring out where you as an investor can add value and where you need to to step out of the way and let them operate on their own so it's different for everyone and there's no one size fits all solution but those two things would be the biggest ones early on that we're that we're looking for in terms of trying to size up a founder's opportunity
0: do you help companies kind of from the content perspective sometimes
1: yeah, you know, that's, that's something that we've looked into. It's a balance that we have to yeah. think about in terms of we don't want to come across like we are their advertising arm because that's not at all what we're trying to do. But if there are ways that we can help them tell a story, whether it's on our site or theirs, that's certainly something, you know, that, that fits into the, whole, the broader idea of what we're trying to do with content.
0: Gotcha. All right. So um, we're almost done here, but I don't- on a, a personal level i am always curious how how do you get away from work? like what do you do um outside work? I'm sure you work a lot, but uh when you're not working, what do you yeah so you I would say
1: yeah and I've heard this from a lot of writers, but it definitely resonates with me is that what I like to do in my free time is is read about stuff, uh-huh. read about tons of different uh, topics you know outside of investing. I almost never read about investing I read about history and about- biographies <laughs> and whatnot. And and I think the the irony is that that's what I do on my downtime, but that's also where I get my article ideas. So it's fun and enjoying and it relieves stress. I don't consider it work at all, but it's it's also constantly when I'm doing that, I'm highlighting passages and writing down ideas that I get from that reading that uh, drives the writing that I do for work afterwards.
0: I feel like I'm Tim Ferriss here, but do you is there a book that you've liked and especially influenced you in the past or just currently a book that's like, wow, this is – because it's it's hard to find a book where you you actually finish the book and you're impressed by the book the, all the way through. <laughs> so I'm always curious yeah. to find Yeah, you know,
1: like you know, I'm, I'm reading a book right now, and I'm not quite done with it. But I'm 90% of the way through, oh. but I'm, I'm definitely through enough that I can, I'm comfortable recommending okay. it. The book is called Boyd, B-O-Y-D. It's a, it's a story about a fighter pilot in the 1950s and 60s named John Boyd who completely transformed how the U.S. Air Force thinks about uh, about combat flying, air-to-air tactics. And just the way that he figured out these tactics was just a, a lay kind of low-ranking Air Force officer and just completely rethought the entire system of 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 air-to-air combat, so just telling that story of how he fought through it—he was a total renegade, didn't didn't take orders from anyone, which doesn't go over well when you're in the military. <laughs> yeah. He's nearly got court court-martialed about two dozen times. But the, the book is just incredibly well written, and it's a fascinating—it's um, uh, a fascinating example of like the, the difference I think that one person, one low-ranking, more or less lay person, can make in a very complicated regimented industry. So there are a lot of takeaways from the book that I think are applicable to many different businesses. Interesting.
0: Boyd B O Y D. Right.
1: Yeah. That's All right. right.
0: All right. I'm get it. Excellent. Uh, well that was good. So uh, I'm always looking for a recommendation. So, well, I think that just about does it. So Morgan, really appreciate uh, hearing about your writing experience and now your VC experience. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So you've, You've done a lot, and uh, appreciate your time and telling us about it. Thanks
1: for, thanks for having me on
0: today. I appreciate it. Definitely. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Morgan. Bye, everyone.